one step in this long progress. It's been a team effort by us all the way. We're but part of the whole team that's worked so hard. The shuttle era will come to an end. But they won't stop inspiring, and they won't stop being a part of the fabric of America. We choose to go to the moon. And welcome everybody to another episode of the Talking Space Podcast. This is Talking Space episode 423 for the week of Monday, July 9th, 2012. I'm Sawyer Rosenstein, and joining me tonight is Gene McCulka. Welcome, Gene. Hey, Sawyer, what's going on? Glad to be here. Glad to have you with us, and welcome as well. That's it. It's just the two of us tonight, but we will have a very special recording from Mark Radman coming up a little bit later in the show. Mark will not be with us as he is out on a work detail for the next couple of weeks. Mark's getting smarter to keep your skies safer, so. (laughs) And Mark, we're counting on you, and if anything goes wrong, we blame the FAA. (laughs) Okay, now, this week, it's still a little bit weird over here with Mark not being here, and we had the special last week for the one year since STS-135. So we're going to have a couple of weeks of some really interesting clips coming for you. This week, we have a special interview from Mark, and then next week, we'll talk about it a little bit later. But before we get to any of the clips, we have one thing that we need to take care of, and it's not actually a news story. However, it is something that we referenced in a previous episode, and that was on episode 421. And we received a listener email from Rich Way. He emailed us at mailbag at talkingspaceonline.com, and this was what he said. On episode 421, you folks discussed the topic of technology loss during the transition from the Saturn program to the shuttle program, and presence of blueprints, which we could use if we ever wanted to go back to Saturn-era technology. The following may be an urban legend, but I heard it directly from a moderately senior DOD, Department of Defense, employee that has some street cred with me. When NASA was going before Congress to get funding for the shuttle, several of the aerospace contractors stated their reluctance to go along. Their supposed fear was that the shuttle was unproven technology, which might prove to be financially unfeasible. The contractors would then be left with a considerable investment to eat as the U.S. went back to Saturn technology. NASA management believed in the shuttle, and to prove their commitment, destroyed every detailed copy of Saturn booster blueprints in existence and scrapped several complete, or nearly complete, Saturn V boosters. At that point, it would be financially very difficult to restart the Saturn program without a prohibitive investment. The shuttle did go forward with contractor support, and when it proved horrendously more expensive to refurbish than anyone's most pessimistic predictions, much of NASA management desperately wanted to abandon the project. Unfortunately, they had politically burned their bridges behind them, much to the delight of said contractors performing the very expensive refurbishments. Obviously, this could be no more than a rumor, and may be a combination of fact and fancy. However, if there are no Saturn Builder's Blueprints still in existence, that would be strong evidence to me that it has at least some basis of truth in it. 
Gene, your reaction? I think in some cases it's a little wet. Um, and I think his, his you know trusted DOD contact is all wrong in, in a few instances. One, I don't think NASA would deliberately destroy uh, the blueprints to the Saturn V. To what end is that? Oh, well, it shuts down the Saturn V production line. Well, not quite. Um, you would have to think that um, you know somebody had blueprints somewhere to these things, and not just NASA had them. Uh, also, uh, he says here uh, about um, you know basically destroying any type of Saturn still in existence. Well, there were only just a just maybe about maybe four Saturn fives left. One was used to to loft Skylab. The other three were reserved for certain flights. You know, Apollo's eighteen, nineteen, twenty. And uh, the way um, James Webb, then NASA administrator, said, well, we don't know how many times it's going to take us to get to the moon. So I'm going to go ahead and order a whole bunch of these guys. But to say to go ahead and, and say that these things were deliberately destroyed, I, I, have, a, I have a significant problem with that. Um, the, the other thing, too, is um, that you know, contractors had misgivings about the shuttle. I, I didn't hear that, I'll, I'll be honest. I, I did my own little bit of homework here, and I really didn't get that anywhere. There's a book that I, I, I know of even that's that's hypercritical on the shuttle. That, uh, it was written by Joe Trento just after the Challenger accident called Prescription for Disaster from the Triumph of Apollo to the Betrayal of the Shuttle. He writes uh, uh, really, really scathingly about uh, the shuttle's evolution uh, and how it all, all really came about. And how we ended up with the vehicle we end, ended up with. Uh, I will say we end, what we really wanted was something you know expensive to build and inexpensive to maintain. What we got was something that was expensive to build and something that was expensive to maintain. And the reason why was um, the requirement by then-President Carter that the shuttle be in charge of all of our lift capability, meaning that all of the expendable boosters were going to go away and we were going to put all of our eggs into the shuttle basket. This was uh, then President Jimmy Carter and then NASA Administrator Robert Frosch. They were the ones who kind of sort of hammered this agreement out. Again, to the Nixon administration was the one who approved the, sh the shuttle, and that was under, under NASA Administrator James Fletcher. So... That meant, too, that the military needed to get on board the shuttle, and in order to do that, they needed this vehicle to be expanded, and that's why we've got something the size of a DC-9 rather than something smaller than that, and that's also why we kind of sort of got the side saddle configuration as well with the solid rocket boosters. I mean, one of the, the early configurations of shuttle was simply a hypersonic jet with a smaller orbiter sitting on top of it. And uh, what was going to happen there was the hypersonic jet was going to you know, take off with the, this thing riding piggyback on it, just like a conventional airliner would. And it would you know, go ahead, go to a certain altitude. The, the little orbiter would peel off just like the, the Enterprise did during the, uh, the drop tests. But instead, the orbiter would go ahead, hit its engines after the hypersonic jet was clear, and then make the final climb into low Earth orbit. Well, that's one of the, one of the plans, but 
it wasn't going to work with the military's specifications because they needed something that could haul something a lot bigger than 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 that orbiter wanted. So that's why we got the vehicle the, the size that we got. But to say, you know, that contractors were trying to sabotage this thing, I I don't know. I, I can't find any evidence of that. Or saying the contractors really, really had some misgivings on it. I, again, I, I because of the technology. I, again, I, I have some misgivings on that. I don't. I don't see any evidence of that. I see some evidence of building a, a mouse, you know, to to government standards, so it looks like an elephant. But I don't see anything, you know, with contractors saying that we were going to deliberately bail out of this. Sawyer, I'll I'll throw it over to you. I don't know. I mean, it, if that is the case, that's interesting. And uh, honestly, it's plausible thinking of the fact that NASA kind of taped over the original tapes of the Apollo 11 moon landing. So if, if you think about that, it does seem possible. But again, I'm thinking unlikely. If, if that's the case, that's quite shocking. But... Yeah, Even I, so, don't don't you think that there would be a copy somewhere floating around of it? They may have destroyed the originals, but there have to be copies. Uh, I, you know, once again, this this goes under. You know, where do they keep the aliens and the freezers over there too? You know, so um, it, it just I don't know. Even if if they were to go ahead and destroy copies in their possession, the contractors had to have them. You know, I mean, NASA wasn't the ones building these boosters you know they were built by you know i mean the, the s2 stage is being built by christ then chrysler and uh you know other other aerospace companies were building their sections of it so they would have you know blueprints and copies of these things in their own archives i don't know i, I mean a lot of it does seem you know factual with the whole you know the idea of the shuttle being you know People thinking that the shuttle was going to be wildly over budget and, you know, wildly undermined of what it could actually be. And that ended up being the case where, you know, technologically, it definitely, I hate to say it, kind of underperformed what they were expecting, especially when it comes to refurbishment, number of flights and cost. So, I mean, I, I can understand their frustration with that and them wanting, you know, to be rebellious. But I don't know. It's a really interesting thought and it's a very interesting tale. And thank you, Rich, very much for sending that in and sharing it with us. Yeah, indeed, Rich. Thanks for for at least you know uh, going ahead and taking the time to write to us and and uh, keeping us thinking. You know, I mean, this doesn't you know this kind of this kind of stuff really really at least it it made me do my homework. So uh, I appreciate uh, you doing that and and please keep you know keep uh, keep writing us. We really do appreciate it. Exactly. These are unique things that we would never talk about or hear about otherwise, and we love hearing your thoughts on it because. We do this show not so we can hear ourselves talk, but we do it for you guys so we can spread out the word to you. And we love when you get involved in the show as well. And remember, you can always get involved by sending any of your questions or comments, either in a text form like Rich did, or as an MP3 to mailbag at TalkingSpaceOnline.com. You can also tweet us a question at TalkingSpace, or you could put it on our Facebook wall at Facebook.com slash TalkingSpace, which, as empty as it may seem, we do check it. All right, now on to the main part of the show, which Mark Raderman prepared for us before he headed out on his way to take care of his actual paying job. 
And he has a very, very awesome interview set aside with an amazing person who he's interviewed a couple of times for us here on Talking Space. And I'll let Mark take it from here. Well, everybody knows who this is, but uh, what you don't know is the guest that I've got for us today. This is a repeat interviewee on Talking Space, someone that perhaps we should work out some kind of a loyalty program to, since she's been with us several times. I'd like to welcome Dr. Tara Rutley from Johnson Space Center to Talking Space. Thanks, Mark. It's really great to be back, as usual. It's always fun to talk with you guys. Well, we talked back in April. I'm not pushing my luck by uh, taking your time today, am I? No way. I'm, I'm glad you reached out uh, because, as you know, time just goes by really, really quickly. And I know I'm sharing everything I can internally, but I don't, sometimes don't think enough to poke my head out. And I appreciate it uh, that you are thinking, uh, thinking of sharing this stuff with everybody who should hear it. So I'm happy to share. Thank you. It's, it's a privilege to have you with us. And uh, just in our initial correspondence and in setting up talking today, uh, we we briefly mentioned back and forth SpaceX, and now that the SpaceX COTS, uh, what do they call it, COTS 2 Plus is over, can you uh, tell us, how is that, how is that excited the office for, for science and cargo and, and such that's such a, a factor there? Sure, yeah. You know, we inside here, we refer to it as SpaceX Demo, um, because it was a demonstration launch, um, but it actually achieved some major major goals um, of its own with regard to communications and navigation and, and uh, space vehicle testing and docking with space station. But then for those of us who are on the science side, we were watching very carefully to, to make sure that its payloads were delivered and that um, we kind of got a, a good feeling about sample return. And so we were able to get that. So you know, I have to say, I was real excited. Um, <laughs> I was I was going down to Mission Control to do an interview regarding the student experiments that went up on this uh, demo launch. And when I got down to Mission Control, the, the doors were shut. And I was like, what's going on here? I couldn't get in. And the, the flight director came around and let me in. And, and it dawned on me right then and there, oh, she said, well, we're in the middle of a mission. <laughs> I looked behind on the big walls and the screen of Mission Control. And I look, and there's this big SpaceX symbol with a trajectory and space station and, and, you know, the stuff that you usually see for a shuttle mission. And it, it dawned on me, oh, I get it. Right, right, right. We, we are in the middle of a mission. And, um, and it had been a while since I'd seen that, and it was real exciting to, to be there on the floor of mission control while folks were working this um, as the real mission that it, that it was. So um, it was really neat to be a part of, part of history. And... Um, and we were real excited to see the, the student experiments get launched um, on those. I think we may have talked about it last time, but it was part of a student competition through the, uh, the Student Space Flight Experiments Program. And um, it, there were about 15 investigations that were launched on SpaceX Demo. And they were, uh, they ran, they were designed by students as part of a competition, and uh, they ranged from bacterial resistance to antibiotics and microgravity to um, spider egg development in microgravity and um, looking at parts of cactus to be able to purify water in space. And so those were delivered. Um, they were the only payloads for science that were delivered to station. And that uh, was really successful. So the students got to be a part of history too, being that it's the first, first commercial uh, vehicle to dock uh, for NASA or for the U.S. to space station and, and, and test itself out. So they were excited. And then um, we, we did receive some return cargo back from, from SpaceX Demo, and that was along the lines of hardware return, mostly hardware return. There was sample return, however, um, in the form of a material sciences investigations that looked at 
um, alloy material processing. There's a facility on orbit called the Material Science Research Rack, or MSRR, and within that rack, scientists can insert different cartridges of different types of alloy materials and just kind of form them in the MSRR under microgravity environments, bring those samples home, crack them open, and look at the, the microstructures of how those uh, materials were formed. And, and with the hope being that, you know, they might learn something new about solidification and, and uh, alloy development processes that could be used to better our development of materials on Earth, but also think about in-situ processing of creating new materials, maybe one day fabrication of real-time um, goods in space. So that was the one sample that came back. Uh, there were a couple of those cartridges returned. I believe there were three. And so right now I'm sure the scientists are excited cracking them open and looking inside. Otherwise, it was return of some um, plant hardware that was used um, for a plant signaling investigation to look at how um, what molecular changes plants see in a microgravity environment. Um, we returned some hardware related to... Um, to uh, fluids, materials, uh, looking at rheology, so so shearing of rheological liquid polymers and how they behave in space, and uh, just other supporting hardware, things that didn't need to be up there, and also like double cold bags, things that keep uh, our samples cold that we want we want back. And so um, so it was really successful. Those were returned, and you know when the capsule landed in the water, uh, you know the capsule made it back, the samples made it back to the laboratories in in uh, in, in good time. So uh, within, well within their requirements and even, I think, a little bit ahead of time, too. So, uh, so we are pleased with that, uh, the return of samples. And so we're looking forward to um, making this a regular deal with uh, SpaceX One um, coming up in, this, I believe, this fall. Um, and uh, just a repeat of two to three per year. And then uh, eventually Orbital will come online as well. So they're not too far behind SpaceX as our second commercial provider for uh, cargo services to the station. What a change. A year ago, there was so much discussion amongst us with Talking Space about the final shuttle flight and how that was going to impact the station, not having that two-way uh, up and down of, of cargo and personnel. Yeah. And it's so good to hear what you're telling us, that uh, oh, yeah. we're, we're, we're knocking on the door of you know three flights a year with uh, SpaceX and, and others that will be coming along. Oh, definitely. You mentioned cold bag returns. Was there any... Um, you know, I know there's a lot of, of science that goes on with the astronauts themselves, and I'm, I'm guessing things like blood samples and, you know, such as that. Did any of, uh, of that type of material come down where, where it could be further analyzed? I know it's analyzed in space, but further looked at on Earth? No, they did not come back on demo. Um, they are still, the cold bags were empty, and so it was mostly just a hardware return. A lot of the, the samples that is being done on crew um, needs a freezer and uh, and to to remain frozen and so they stayed on orbit until um, some of the requirements are pounded out really well and, and in place and and we're comfortable with as we will have on SpaceX One um, most of that's slated to return on SpaceX One in the meantime a few ambient samples are returned with every Soyuz flight so um, last minute sample collection, um, for example, for integrated immune uh, investigations are collected right before flight, and they can make it home as ambient. But most of our human research samples have stayed on orbit, didn't, didn't bring them home for demo, but plan to return a big old lot of them for uh, SpaceX One. I'm curious, you mentioned the student experiments, and you know this has uh, been a long time since I was a student in that regard of, of so many things to learn. and. Are, are the experiments that they do, are they just repeats of what's already been done here? 
but but taken to a weightless environment, or is it something where these students are really thinking out there on the edge and coming up with some new investigations of their own? You know, I have to say that I love the student experiments because they are out there on the edge coming up with things on their own. You can tell that some of them are inspired by what we've done on station. For example, you know, the the antibiotics resistance to, you know, in the bacteria. But there are some, some ones out there that I would really just, I, I would love to see just out of my own curiosity, like the spider egg development or the... Um, they even have a liver cell development um, investigation <laughs> that that was that was happening as part of this um, hepatocytes investigation on scaffolding. So the things that I read when I read the student um, list are things that I think are just kind of like, wow, that's so cool! Someone's going to try that, and you know, it's a, why not? It's kind of throw it out there, see what you get, and it it really allows for real creativity in in ways that you never know what you're going to see. So, so I like them. They're really fun. I think there were almost 800 proposals that were submitted and, and boiled down to these, you know, top 15. So, um, yeah, they're pretty cool. Speaking of students, I've got to ask you about this, and I, I don't know if it's something you were involved with, but I saw a press release about NASA hosting some future female explorers at Johnson Space Center this week and, a, and another week in July called the WISH program, the Women in STEM High School Aerospace Scholars Project, or WISH? Yep, uh-huh. Were you involved with that, or have you heard much about it uh, since it's there in your backyard? No, you know, I haven't actually been involved in it, but I've read about it, too, I think, and I've heard about it, and... um I don't, but and I know it's part of the aerospace scholars program, which I've participated as a mentor in the past. But I'm not particularly involved in this one, although I'm looking forward to meeting some of them um, when they come out here to JSC because um, because I think that being immersed in the environment that's down here, the laboratories, the aerospace parts, um, there's this is this is like real life space camp down here. So so I think they're going to get a chance to be immersed and be really challenged in some of their thinking along the lines of, you know, what it, and even if they don't want to pursue STEM as a career, let's face it, STEM is in every aspect of everything that we do as human beings. So whether or not, you know, if they go to pursue some arts or humanities, there's a level of STEM involved that challenges your critical thinking and your leadership capabilities and uh, the ability to relate as a team and make uh, good choices. So I'm, I'm excited to meet them when they come out. Um, and uh, I don't have any formal plans with them yet, but I'm looking forward to just uh, following along and participating where I can. You mentioned being a mentor previously. What's what's that like? Oh, gosh, it's fun. Um, you know, especially with um, I've mentored undergraduate students and, and high school. Actually, when I first came out to NASA, I mentored high school students. And they, um, they again, they bring, you know, they bring a level of thought that's fresh and and. You know, you, you, when you've been around the centers a long time, sometimes you just kind of get caught in the same processes and the same passive thinking. And, and, and not to overuse the term think outside the box, but sometimes you just get, get in the flow of things. And so mentoring the students kind of gets you away and, and lets you see, wow, this is what the next generation's thinking. Here's how I might be able to help facilitate their thinking and even have some really good ideas that take root and, and move forward. Um, I love when I touch base with some um, some of the students that they don't, I love to fill them in on some of the, the programs that I participated in as an undergraduate, like the the un, the um, the uh, the parabolic flights 
the opportunities for, for undergrads that come up. Um, I think once or twice a year you get a chance as a student to create a proposal and, and a design to fly it on the so-called Vomit Comet the, that provides uh, 30 seconds of microgravity less. There are those programs. There are the internships. There are the co-ops. There are even graduate student um, opportunities for, for funding, you know, dissertation or thesis research. So anytime I get a chance to connect with those students and I to fill them in on little nuggets of, of information here and there, it's, it's, really, it's really cool to, to help move them to the next level or at least, you know, capture their thinking in a way they, they hadn't even thought about before. There are opportunities out there, and, and sometimes they may seem scattered everywhere. So I like to try to pull it all in and say, well, here's what worked for me. Maybe it'll work for you. <laughs> now, when you were a student, did you get the opportunity to fly that, uh, those parabolic flights? I did, you know, and um, it was funny because I was a biology student, and um, and I needed, a, you know, I had a great idea for an exercise machine, and I couldn't d- build the thing by myself. I needed to put a, pull together a team of engineering students, too. So I got some really cool engineering students in on it. A team of four of us uh, wrote a proposal, got selected two years in a row as undergrads to fly that machine on the, uh, back then it was called the KC-135. It's the uh, Vomit Comet, and uh, there's nothing like it to, to take your idea from, you know, ground proposal all the way through to implementation and to find yourself floating for 30 seconds at a time in a microgravity environment while running that experiment is the coolest thing ever. I mean... And, uh, and those folks, uh, some of those folks on my team, I still work with here at JFC today, you know, something like 11 or 12 years later. So, so uh, we're all doing really great things and, and having fun um, where we are now. But certainly uh, it was a highlight of my undergraduate career. Very interesting. Yeah. I never thought about that. I just happened to see that on one of the articles that I'd read about you. And I thought, wait <laughs> a second, it sounds like you were there. <laughs> yeah, I took advantage of all the fun stuff that NASA had to offer undergraduates back then, except I never did a co-op. It was an interesting thing. I never was a co-op at NASA because I was a biology student, and they didn't accept biology co-ops at the time. It was mostly engineering and business. So, I, But I did everything else I possibly could get my hands on. <laughs> well, what uh, what kind of other things have you got for us? We've, we've covered SpaceX and yeah. some other distractions that I come along with, but uh, what else is, is cool and fun? So we're moving out of SpaceX, and now we're moving into the launch of 31F Soyuz, um, which will uh, basically, with the undocking of of, of 29S coming up here um, in in, in early July, we'll have the launch of 31S, I believe, early July, maybe maybe July 10th, if I should get my notes in front of me, make sure I get my launch dates right. Um, yes, uh, July 15th is 31S, and it'll have three crew members on board, and we'll start uh, increment 32. And so when we start increment 32, there's all kinds of new research happening there. And, um, you know, going up with this particular Soyuz, Soyuz is usually loaded with um, hardware to support human research. So that's pretty standard stuff. And so we'll start increment 32, and then after uh, 31S, soon t- right, right behind it's going to launch JAXA's HTV-3, um, so that's an unmanned vehicle full of goodies, cargo um, for resupply for crew and also for, for utilization for research. And so some of the really cool things that will be as part of that payload will be uh, that our, our JAXA friends are going to be sending up something called an aquatic habitat. And the aquatic habitat is actually going to be an aquarium. 
set up. It'll have two two small aquariums, in fact, about half a liter each, that'll be able to house madaka or zebra fish. And these are model organisms we know a lot about. We know a lot about their genetics and their physiology. They're easy to um, to look at under microscopes. They're easy to figure out. So uh, JAXA plans to use these aquariums to uh, to to house fish, uh, madaka or zebra fish, over a period of anywhere from two to three months. And JAXA has had a really good history of successfully breeding fish in space, but their but their longest ever happened on a space shuttle mission for a period of 16 days. So now they're going to get the opportunity to, to create multi-generations of fish over a period of 90 days, which would, could see three generations. So your, your mom was born on the ground and you were born in space, then you were born in space, and then your kid's born in space kind of a deal, and, uh, and see what happens um, physiologically if there are any developmental, interesting developmental changes that happen. Um, they're also going to look at these fish, the bones of these fish, and kind of uh, look at how um, bone and the muscle might be impacted in the microgravity environment, look at effects of radiation on these fish uh, as well. And so it's a really neat habitat that's going to be um, put inside of the Kibo. And the fish don't won't go until, I think, the fall on a Soyuz flight, but the hardware is going to go up there on HTV and be installed and checked out by the crew before the fish come up later. And so Jax is really excited about this new facility. So are we. It's going to allow some pretty neat science to happen. Um, and they're, they're real, real pros at the fish development. We are also going to send up, um, as part of the HTV, a new um, telescope, telescope with camera capabilities. So it's a new remote sensing um, payload. It's going to be housed and mounted uh, inside the Window Observational Research Facility, or the WARF. And it's going to be looking at about a 45-degree angle down at Earth. And it'll be automated from the ground. The ground can command it to take all kinds of images of Earth that, that we want. So, for example, in response to uh, natural disasters, um, if there's something particular we want to look at, ecological changes or population growth, um, it's cons- this, this data acquisitioning system is called ISERV. And it's part of the SERVIR program. SERVIR is Spanish for to serve, and SERVIR is a program that's joint between NASA and the U.S. for Agency for International Development, or USAID. And the goal of, of this organization, SERVIR, is to basically um, communicate around the globe and offer um, any kind of assistance we can with Earth imaging in response to natural disasters or climate change or global changes uh, in general um, through imaging of the Earth. And so this is a major capability for the SERVIR program. And um, and, it, and the, the ISERV payload itself is really just intended to be a pathfinder payload. It's what we call a pathfinder. You send up this hardware, you, you send commands, you get some good operational information as to how it works, how things could be improved. Um, and then the images that come back will be analyzed and for usefulness on the ground. Do these do these work great or should they be improved? And the idea is to use ISERV as a way to um, pound out some of the basics uh, in te- terms of technology ready to, readiness level that might someday in- increase the capabilities on orbit to a level of more um, mature uh, technology or bigger and better telescopes and cameras, so to speak, or or things that we might just leverage on as technology develops. So. Uh, so we're excited to see ISERV up and permanently mounted in the wharf when it when it launches on HTV. And then there's another really cool s- series of payloads that will be launching on the HTV, and these are called the Small Satellite Orbital Deployers. And these are little, there's a series of five small, what we call cube satellites. Um, they're just, you could hold them in the palm of your hand. And um, three of them are JAXAs, 
two of them are NASA's, so it's joint effort. They'll be launched, all five of them will be launched in the HTV on a platform called the Deployer. And then once HTV gets into orbit, the robotic arms will move it to the uh, airlock where um, it'll be stored. And then later on, the robotic, the, the, the gem robotic arm, or the Japanese robotic arm will reach inside the airlock later on, when, and probably this fall, and um, position the deployer far uh, from aft to nadir of the space station in a retrograde path and just deploy these five satellites. I think the first three go out, JAXA, and then later, um, soon after, the, the two NASA will go out. And so you're basically deploying these free flyers out of the space station, and these free flyers will start to orbit the Earth, and each one of them does different things. Um, each one of them can, you know, um, communicate through different bands, um, either, you know, there's the one, one, one of them that's a NASA student-designed um, uh, cube is called TechSat, TechEdSat, I'm sorry, and it can actually, um, it's going to use different, it's going to be able to communicate via um, amateur radio frequency, but also going to test the Iridium and Orbicom satellite communication capabilities. So there's some communication tests going on, and again, all designed by students. Um, another one uh, is with, uh, in conjunction with NanoRacks. It's a commercial company here that, that provides uh, increased and improved payload capabilities here at NASA. And that will that one's been actually in conjunction with the Vietnamese space um, program, and they will do you know they're testing out a number of different things too, like uh, just taking pictures of the Earth and testing out different communication capabilities. And then the three JAXA payloads do lots of different things too, um, thermal or um, remote sensing or communication. So each one is you know, navigation. Uh, each one is outfitted with a set of sensors, and they all have specific um, goals. But really, the really cool first goal is to get through get through to deployment. <laughs> so once these things are deployed, then then and then they're functioning. They'll orbit for about 21 days or so before they they burn up and on reentry into the atmosphere. And uh, and then and then when all that data comes back, Jackson and NASA get together and say, okay. Now we've got this capability. We've proved that we can deploy free flyers from station. What more could we possibly use this for? And then the technology development and demonstration component of using space station as a test bed is really uh, going to have a new area of growth. So we're excited about that um, as one of the payloads that will be delivered from HTV as well. We also have a new um, a new plate reader that's going up uh, from NanoRacks as well. The plate reader will be housed inside space station. If you're if you're a scientist, you know that a, a plate reader is 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 a chemical research facility. It uses uh, spectrophotometry uh, light to uh, analyze samples um, in little tiny micro cuvettes, samples of protein um, chemistry or samples of microbial. Uh, chemistry, chemi just basic chemistry, uh, just mostly it's a fundamental facility that's used in laboratories for all kinds of data analysis and sample analysis, including materials and life sciences. And so it's a fundamental capability that all scientists are going to want, and it allows um, improved data analysis capability on space station. Rather than waiting for samples to come home and be analyzed, we're hoping to be able to do more real-time analysis on station with this capability. So we have... Um, a whole lot of cool stuff going up on HTV. And in regard to the student experiments, we have yet another one going up. And this one's real exciting because you can check it out on YouTube. Um, this was the YouTube Space Lab uh, contest that went out last year. 
uh, U2 Space Lab put up a big contest in global, accepting global proposals in terms of video format from students all over the world um, who would propose investigations to do on space station in the areas of uh, biology and physics. And basically from all of the entries, I think over 2,000 entries, um, it was narrowed down to two who will, that will actually be performed on space station and they will actually be using hardware that was designed for, uh, for Space Station as well. So the first winner, um, the two global winners, one is a set of um, two females from, from America, and they are going to look at um, the antifungal properties of a particular uh, bacteria to see, you know, it's got natural antifungal properties, and they want to see if exposure to space is going to affect their antifungal properties. And they're actually going to fly it in something called the GAP, it's the group activation pack, and that's hardware that our standard bacterial uh, researchers use. So it's it's real life hardware um, that these students will be able to use. They're going to send it up on uh, HTV and activate it when it gets to the space station. And then the second investigation that was selected um, was from a winner in Egypt, and um, he will uh, he proposed sending up a spider habitat. In uh, in particular, he wanted to see if this so-called jumping spider would still attack its prey the same way that it would uh, on Earth because this particular spider, when it attacks its prey, first it sends out its own like little web of uh, kind of like a bungee cord to protect him from falling, like a tether. So should he jump at his prey, if he falls, the tether would save him, so to speak. And so the question is, you know, if the spider will attack its prey on orbit, Will he need that tether, or will there be just a new way of, of attacking its prey? And so he will be using uh, the student. Well, the, the spider is actually being loaded right now out in um, Boulder, Colorado, into the spider habitat that we've, we've used in the past for spider um, investigations. I think we had one up uh, when you and I met on SDS-134 last year. Mm-hmm. Um, and and we'll, well, it's being loaded. This jumping spider is being loaded, and... Uh, and uh, we're excited to see it'll have video capabilities, just like what we had last year. So um, these two groups of winners are just real excited, and and I'm interested to see. You know, we're all watching to see what the results will be too, because they're very visible, and uh, and uh, real important. So uh, it's exciting. There's it's a really busy, busy summer for uh, all of the new investigations that are going up, and this was just in regard to HTV. Um, there's more to come. Um, our progress flight have, that's also coming up this summer will have um, some investigations on it as well. So we are <laughs> busy, busy, busy. It's going to be a busy summer of vehicle visits to space station and a busy summer of new research. In fact, over what we call Expedition 31 and 32, um, between NASA, ESA, JAXA, CSA, and Russia, We'll have around two over two hundred investigations happening on orbit at, at, during this time frame between thirty one expedition thirty one and thirty two, and that's that's representing about sixty five countries um, uh, over you know over the life of that, and so they're we're pretty busy um, supporting over four hundred scientists on the ground for for these for this period just this period of time. So we're busy. Our offices are busy. The crew members are busy. They are um, they're busier than ever on orbit. We're busier than ever here on the ground. Um, we're excited to see that the research is is really taking off. Um, 
and and certainly no prospect of slowing down. <laughs> I'm keeping busy talking about each flight. You know, here in the office, they they call me. You know, kind of talk about what's going up on this flight and that flight and that flight. And it it's it's a challenge to keep track of because there's so much. Um, but it's real exciting stuff too. So I think we're in a really great place for space station research. With what you've talked about here, the last couple minutes, each one I'm thinking, oh wow, I'd like to know more about that. Yeah, if you want to, you can, um, again, go to uh, www.nasa.gov slash ISS dash science. And you can even, um, when you go there, you can see every experiment. You can check experiment by uh, increment. So you can look them up by increment 31, 32. And, and so you might not recognize right off the bat the ones that I'm talking about if you go through this experiments list, but we also have at that site, a page called Latest News. And we write news stories and press releases associated with all of these cool things. And, um, and so you can, also, uh, if you, you can also get a sign-up to be on our, um, kind of our, our, our listserv if you're interested in that as well, is to just seeing the stories that we write. They're posted right there on the, the website. We also keep a blog that talks about these things. So um, definitely go to iss-science. And, uh, and and you probably recognize half of the things that I'm talking about. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking at the experiments page there now, and I see the latest news that you mentioned, and uh, yeah. and how you can look at them by experiment names and partners, expeditions. Yep. This yep. is a great resource. Thank you. And I would say while you're there, there's also a for researchers page. Um, and I wanted to take this time to, when you when you were walking through the website, it kind of rung a bell. I mean, if um, you know, CASIS is the Center for Advancement in Space uh, Science or Science and Space, mm-hmm. is our um, nonprofit managing nonprofit organization that manages the National Laboratory component of the space station, and they are just about to, if they haven't already, um, about to release their first um, announcement of opportunity for funding. Uh, for a proposal on the space station. So, and it will be in the area of protein crystal growth. And so, um, it's kind of nice to, it's really nice to see, um, the protein crystal growth, uh, revival on station. There's a lot of good, uh, valid arguments for why we'd want to grow crystals on station. And that is the reduced gravity leads to the reduced convection and then, uh, less sedimentation, and the idea is that you can grow more perfect crystal structures that lets you find um, things, components in the 3D, 3D geometrical structure that you might not see on the ground. So on the ground, you can kind of think of it in terms of you're growing squishy crystals, crystals that would collapse, and you can't quite see everything. And the reason we care is that with proteins in particular, if you know their true structure of, of any of any one protein, then you could play the mad scientist and control its function, <laughs> or get a better understanding of its function, which has which goes a long way in terms of um, healthcare and biotechnology and you know pharmaceutical development. Um, for example, we've we've had JAXA partners who have sent up protein crystals in the past that have um, identified ways and have produced crystals in a way that has allowed them to identify a hidden water molecule they hadn't seen before in a particular treatment that's used for Duchenne in a particular protein that's used to treat Duchenne muscular dystrophy. And so because they found that hidden water molecule, they were able to improve their treatment, uh, at least in the laboratory settings right now. So it's an example of, wow, let's just let's see. You know, you never know what you know, 
what you don't know until you send it up there and then you find out, wow, here's different something different we hadn't thought about before. How can we leverage that? So the protein crystal uh, growth is, is an opportunity that's coming up now for those of you who researchers who are interested in that. Um, go to cases.org. I think it's cases.org, or you can Google cases. I should know that website, but, but I don't. Um, <laughs> or you can also go to um, our ISS-science page, and then I'll get you there as well. Um, and, and they're real excited about the new opportunity, and we're excited too. I know we're getting close on time where you need to go. Do you have time for some, uh, you mentioned a teaser about fire. Yeah, you know, I did. When we when we talked in, in preparation for this, I, I, I kind of mentioned fire, and everybody loves to hear about fire. And I think maybe the last time we talked, I'm not quite sure, but I think we talked about the fact that some of the um, flame investigations that are happening on space station have led to some unexpected results, and the investi- it led the investigators scratching their heads for a few months. But basically what they saw was inside of the combustion integrated rack, there's an experiment that sets um, fuel droplets on fire. So they, they've used heptane, they've used methane, they've used a few other types of fuels. But um, what they found was when they set these fuel droplets on fire, they really are just looking at the combustion events and, and the extinguishing events and just trying to get a good handle on how flames burn in space. Because of the um, implications you could obviously have to fire control and suppression in a spaceflight environment, but also you learn some basics you know, along the way that can help you here on the ground too. Um, but what they're finding is that, that they've set these, these droplets of fuel on fire, and it burns in a nice spherical flame uh, that they would expect to see, and then, you know, burns to completion, so they see extinction of the, of the fire. And then about ten, 5 to 10 seconds later, for some reason, they see a reignition of some event or a secondary event. And I think if you Google it, you could probably find it. If you Google the experiment FLEX, F-L-E-X, um, or YouTube it. Uh, I think there's YouTube video out there that shows it. Um, the secondary event is the reignition in the form of a red toroid-shaped cloud. It looks like a donut, and it's so repeatable. It happens with lots of different fuel types. And the investigators were kind of, well, we weren't expecting that. That's that's new. Uh, and they set off to go figure out what's going on there. So then their next few sets of runs when they did these combustion experiments, they took special measurements, went back and looked at everything and figured out that I can't tell you everything because (laughs) I've stopped myself. But they do think they have a handle on what they're seeing. And it's something that we see here on Earth as well, but it's happening in reverse of what we see here on Earth. So without telling you everything and scooping the scientists, which Uh... would awful of me. Sure. Gonna let them do it. <laughs> but it's something to be on the lookout for and it's really exciting and um has some serious implications in how we would plan to control fire suppression in space. And also could apply to the way we process our diesel fuels here on the ground in a way that could potentially be cleaner. So it's um Man, it's hard for me to hold back because I want to just share it all, but I but I can't um, watch for it. it it's, see, right now, the scientists, uh, this group of scientists have written a, uh, what's called a white paper on it, and so they've submitted to peer-reviewed publications. So it's going through peer review right now for publication in a, in a, in a scientific journal, and, uh, and then once that's accepted, I think all the news will come out and be shared. So I'm giving you a taste, and I'm leaving you with that. <laughs> 
Well, one thing I think I can easily say from uh, us at Talking Space and from our listeners is go ISS, go <laughs> NASA. Yeah, thank you. Yes, it's real exciting. I know uh, it's fun to see some of these scientists you know, send you the emails going, oh, yes, I think we figured it out, exclamation point. So uh, thank you very much. We're having fun, and uh, Space Station is a, it's a really great place to be, and uh, we're doing our best to communicate that to the public, too, through through help with you guys and, and avenues like this. So feel free to keep reaching out. I love it. Thank you, Tara. Associate Program Scientist for the ISS, with NASA at Johnson Space Center, Tara Rutley, thanks again for joining us on Talking Space. Thank you, Sarah. I'll talk to you again soon. Once again, thank you very much, Mark Ratterman, and of course, Dr. Tara Rutley, for rejoining us here on Talking Space. Always a pleasure to have uh, Dr. Rutley on. Indeed. I mean, there's so much that goes on on the ISS that we never get to hear about, so I love getting to hear it straight from the source. Indeed, and I love going ahead and putting it out there for everybody's consideration too goes to show what's going on on the ISS is some really great stuff and folks got to pay attention to it that's for sure you don't know what you're going to miss on the station and I mean that's that's evidence right there and how it's going to go ahead and help uh, life back down on here and with that that brings this episode to its conclusion I'd like to thank Eugene McCulk for joining us here tonight <laughs> And Sawyer, i got to go ahead and give a, a shout-out to a friend of mine, Dr. Karen James. Uh, she announced on her Facebook page that she was uh, applying for uh, the astronaut uh, corps, and she made the first cut. So, again, uh, my, uh, my, uh, my big, big, uh, you know, yahoo goes out to, uh, to, to Dr. Karen James. Congratulations, and I hope you keep going. Us, too. It would be great to have a friend of the show in the astronaut corps. Amen. And again, thank you to Mark Ratterman and Dr. Tara Rutley for that interview as well. Now, as we talked about last week, Gene still has an interview set aside for us with uh, former shuttle flight director Bob Zeke. And we will be playing that for you guys next week's show. Right, Gene? Yeah, I can't wait. This, that was a, a, a fun time. This, again, was recorded at the Kennedy Space Center uh, during STS-135, and uh, I was I, I was quite honored to talk to this man. Uh, he his career spans uh, from Gemini right through shuttle, and uh, just an amazing gentleman. I can't wait to share the interview with him. Indeed, we can't wait to share that. But for that, you're going to have to wait till next week. But in the meantime, as always, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be, where you are. 